Osteobites is a weekly osteosarcoma webinar and podcast presented by MIB Agents. This week, we are talking with Dr. Matteo Trugo of Cleveland Clinic about his MIB outsmarting osteosarcoma research, Disulfiram to Overcome Chemo Resistance. Our panelists are patient advocates Amanda Levine and Florencia Pistrito, and Liz Vallejo, MIB Agents Programs Chief. I'm your host, Anne Graham. Welcome to Osteobites, everyone. Did you bring your snack? I brought my cashews, everybody. Yes. It looks like uh, tree nuts are the, the order of the day. Um, we continue our series today of updates on MIB agents funded osteosarcoma research with our 2019 Outsmarting Osteosarcoma winner, Dr. Matteo Trucco. My name is Anne Graham, and I'm an osteosarcoma survivor. MIB Agents began in 2012 with the mission to make it better for Alyssa, who was 10 years old and treated at the same time as me. We became an official 501c3 in 2016 to further this mission to make it better for our kids with osteosarcoma. That mission continues today by providing direct patient and family support by bringing together the physician, researcher, and patient community in the spirit of collaboration and by funding meaningful research. Today is an awesome day at HQ to have Dr. Truco with us talking about his MIB, Outsmarting Osteosarcoma-funded research, Disulfiram to Overcome Chemo Resistance. And we're joined by Liz Vallejo, an MIB agents team member and panelist of the day. Uh, Florencio Pistrito and Amanda Levine, both patient uh, advocates for osteosarcoma. Dr. Truco, would you lead by introducing yourself, please? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, I've done a few of these already, so you might recognize me. <laughs> My name is Matteo Truco. I'm a pediatric oncologist, um, and I'm the director of uh, the Innovative Therapies Program in Pediatric Cancer here at the Cleveland Clinic. And it's been an honor collaborating with Anne on named by the agents uh, with the Factor Conference, and I was honored to um, actually be awarded the, uh, the Outsmarting Osteosarcoma uh, Award a couple years ago. And um, today I get to share some of the work we've been doing on that. My name is Florencia. I am a, an osteosarcoma survivor, and I am the administrator also of the Facebook group. It's a support group uh, that is for uh, patients, carers, and family of osteosarcoma patients. Hi, I'm Amanda. I was, I am the administrator of the close group on Facebook for OS survivors and caregivers and patients and families that have lost their loved ones. I was diagnosed with OS in um, 1987. I've been through a year of chemo and a million surgeries, and I'm here now for everyone with ALS. But um, thank you to MIB and to Anne, Dr. Trico, Liz, it's great to see you, and Florencia, you too. Hi everyone, I'm Liz Vallejo. Um, I uh, work with MIB um, since my son Ian was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in 2016. 
and my current role is to um, help with the programs within MIB. So thank you so much, Anne, for having me here today. Thanks all for being here. Dr. Truco? So thank you again for uh, letting me share the, the work we're doing. And, you know, those who have been working with uh, MIB agents and attending the Factor Conference have actually kind of witnessed this um, project from a little more than some scribbles on a, on a notepad all the way to uh, now where we're getting close to opening the trial. And it's, it's certainly evolved from the, the first concept, even from the concept proposed to, um, for the Outsmarting Osteosarcoma uh, Award. Uh, but I think it's, it's evolved into a much better trial and um, feedback I've gotten from a lot of other uh, researchers, um, they, they concur that it seems to be a much more robust and, and much more interesting trial the way it's evolved. So, um, as many of you guys know, I've been working with MIB Agents and Factor since 2016. Uh, I'm also on the board, and disulfiram is an FDA-approved drug, but it is not FDA-approved for uh, cancer, and specifically not for osteosarcoma. But this clinical trial hopefully will help uh, answer whether or not it should be. So, again, if a couple years ago, uh, MIB agents and, and the Factor community awarded me the $100,000 Outsmarting Osteosarcoma Grant. I was at the University of Miami at that time and have since moved, which also then uh, added some challenges to things, but uh, I think we're back on track. Um, you know, this all started, I, I told people not very romantically, it was just me staring at a whiteboard and thinking about um, what uh, what we could do uh, to move the needle forward in osteosarcoma. And, uh, you know, based on some of the work I did back in fellowship when I was in David Loeb's lab at Johns Hopkins, we were studying, you know, mechanisms of resistance in, uh, in cancer cells, sarcoma cells, and what, uh, what markers could be used to find those resistant cells. We actually wrote this paper together about so-called sarcoma stem cells, which are this subpopulation of the cancer that seems to be resistant to uh, chemotherapy, among other features. And one way of identifying that population, or at least enriching for that population, is looking at the cells that express high levels of an enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase. And it just so happens Dave had done work on this in Ewing sarcoma. Uh, there's some other groups that had worked on it in osteosarcoma, also in rhabdomyosarcoma. They've kind of found the same enzyme uh, being expressed at high levels in the cells that seem most resistant and possibly the ones uh, to blame for metastases and, and relapses. And there's this whole kind of cancer stem cell hypothesis as to whether or not there are these unique cells within a cancer that act the way stem cells do in, in normal tissue, that they just kind of lay low and then give rise to new tissue when needed. So that would be kind of this model over here. Um, 
in contrast, some other people say, listen, if you're just treating cancer cells due to the way cancer cells are, they're going to evolve, they're going to adapt, and so you'll get, develop resistant uh, cells. E whether it's one model, the other, a hybrid of both, it really doesn't matter. The problem that we face is with metastases and relapses is cancer cells that are resistant to the current therapies we have. So while we're actively trying to find new and better therapies, uh, my, my project was aiming at, let's find a way to overcome the resistance that these cells have. And it just so happens that when you look at aldehyde dehydrogenase, it's an enzyme, and enzymes do things. And it seems in various groups, um, especially the group in Pittsburgh when related to uh, osteosarcoma, that enzyme is actively uh, contributing to the resistance uh, to chemotherapy that we're seeing in, in those cells. Uh, how exactly it does that is, is being teased out, but it's not just a marker that happens to be there. It, it's actively doing the, playing a role in that resistance. Um, and so that's where I kind of got the idea, and, and others have similarly gotten the idea that uh, targeting it might be a way of overcoming the resistance we see in chemo. This is just a list, and it could probably be even longer, of drugs that have been shown to be affected by aldehyde dehydrogenase. So cells that express higher levels of aldehyde dehydrogenase tend to be resistant to all these drugs. And this is like a who's who of chemotherapy that we use for osteosarcoma. Here's some other drugs, uh, some other classes of drugs uh, that also seem affected. Um, and here's a paper, again, um, by Kurt Weiss and, and his colleagues in Pittsburgh that were actually looking at rapamycin and how it affects the aldehyde dehydrogenase uh, activity in osteosarcoma. And that fitted nicely with a paper that me and Dave had published on a clinical trial using uh, a derivative of rapamycin, Temsirolimus, in, a, in an early attempt to overcome the resistance we were seeing in, uh, in relapse sarcomas. And so we kind of were just playing with Temsirolimus, thinking that the mTOR pathway was important, and using the aldehyde dehydrogenase as a marker of stem cells and just seeing if somehow mTOR would sensitize the stem cells to um, the chemotherapy. And only later did we kind of realize, oh wait, um, based on Kurt's work, rapamycin may be actually targeting that enzyme that we thought was so important. And so it was, it was nice to see that, you know, these two projects kind of, the story evolved together. And the trial was actually over long before we published it. Um, so actually, I think Kurt's uh, paper came out along the time that we were wrapping up the study. So ooh, aldehyde dehydrogenase, it's an enzyme, it's in our body. It's part of the pathway that our liver uses to metabolize alcohol. Um, so here's alcohol, you have a beer or something, alcohol dehydrogenase converts it to an aldehyde, then aldehyde dehydrogenase converts it to acetate, and then that is processed by your liver uh, and, and cleared from the body. So there's this medicine, disulfiram, which is uh, commercially known as antabuse, that was developed to 
as a drug to give to people suffering from alcoholism, wherein that if they take this medicine every day, they're fine unless they fall off the wagon and they drink alcohol, at which point they can't break it down anymore. And if aldehydes kind of build up in your body because you block this enzyme, it can make you extremely sick. And in fact, uh, if someone taking hand abuse has an alcoholic drink, they get flushed, they get nauseous, they get dizzy. It's a pretty uh, dramatic reaction. And there are actually some people that lack this enzyme naturally. And if they have alcohol, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a little more prevalent in Asian communities. And it's this kind of stereotypical red uh, and sweaty and, and just getting flushed and, and sick. So what we were thinking of is instead of trying to get around it uh, by blocking mTOR with rapamycin or temsirolimus, why not just use the drug that directly blocks that enzyme and see if that potentiates uh, the sensitivity of these drugs, of these cells to the chemotherapy. And there's a bunch of theories on how it uh, plays this role. Uh, you know, in this top little drawing, in cancer cells, as they keep dividing and dividing, uh, it causes more and more aldehydes, which they, the cells increase the aldehyde dehydrogenase, converting it to acids, which are less toxic to them, and hence preventing the DNA damage and oxidative stress that would kill the cells. If, again, theoretically, if you block the aldehyde dehydrogenase, you get more of these aldehydes. These aldehydes are toxic to DNA, they'll create more DNA damage, it'll lead to more oxidative stress, more reactive oxygen species, just this vicious cycle, which would eventually kill the cancer cells. So that's the theory. <clears throat> There's a lot of other pathways that um, have been, disulfiram has been shown to play a role in. It affects the pumps that uh, have been uh, blamed for pumping chemotherapy out of the cell so it doesn't have its effect. Um, it can affect P53, which Josh Schiffman will talk about next week. And it has an effect on other mechanisms for uh, creating uh, resistance to therapy and survival for, for cancer cells. And so if we can block them, uh, it may work in a variety of different ways. And uh, Kurt and his uh, team in Pittsburgh has actually found some, some additional pathways that might be important that we're looking to explore. This is not a unique idea. There are 14 trials uh, in some degree of uh, uh, underway uh, looking at disulfiram in various cancers, breast cancer, brain cancers, uh, several, none of them yet in sarcomas. And you know, again, a lot of these are, are all coming from Kurt's lab uh, and others, though, um, looking at disulfiram in osteosarcoma in the lab, seeing whether or not uh, it has an effect. And it does show to uh, be toxic uh, to the, the osteosarcoma cells. Um, this is another one of the papers where if you can look here, the more disulfiram you give, the less uh, cancer cell growth you see in the Petri dish as you move from uh, left to right. So 
our trial uh, actually went through a lot of evolutions. Um, uh, sorry that this is cut off. Uh, initially, we thought, okay, let's just focus on adult patients. Let's just um, uh, have two different cohorts with the plan to open up a trial for, for younger patients later on. Uh, initially, we were going to do gemcitabine docetaxel because it seemed like the best uh, combination to apply to a bunch of different sarcomas, not just osteosarcoma. Then, actually, it was with the Otsmarting osteosarcoma uh, trial that, uh, sorry, award that uh, Pete Anderson suggested maybe incorporating continuous infusion ifosfamide uh, to kind of help focus it on osteosarcoma patients and some other sarcoma patients. Um, and then it went from kind of like a phase two trial in older patients um, and back and forth. So this was the original Actually, this was the second <laughs> design of the trial, including gemcitabine, gemcitabine docetaxel, um, and continuous infusion ifosfamide. It was going to be uh, in patients 12 years and older, uh, and then with the intention to eventually open a, a trial or a, a cohort for younger patients. Um, what's kind of evolved from that is that, well, gemcitabine docetaxel has been shown to be less and less uh, appealing to some of the other sarcomas, uh, and it's usually third line uh, for, for osteosarcoma. Uh, the continuous infusion ifosfamide, while still interesting uh, for osteosarcoma, and some people are starting to favor this method of administering ifosfamide, it's not widely accepted. Um, the reason we went with the 14-day was we wanted to try to minimize some of the toxicities um, that might be enhanced by disulfiram. Uh, and that really applies to osteosarcoma. It doesn't apply to Ewing sarcoma, um, and it might not even apply uh, to a lot of the rhabdomyosarcoma. So you'd, you'd kind of be focusing the, the amount of patients for that, whom this backbone would be helpful. And so eventually I came, I ended up moving here to the Cleveland Clinic. And what I came to realize is both here and in uh, a lot of other sites, they're using a lot of doxyl, which is a liposomal doxorubicin. So the same doxorubicin that makes up MAP therapy, but formulated in a way so that you can go to higher and higher uh, cumulative doses without being toxic to the heart. The side effects are also um, generally milder than doxorubicin. And it just so happens doxyl is the, the drug that we combined with temsirolimus many years ago um, in that clinical trial that I discussed earlier. So it seemed like a logical evolution of that temsirolimus doxyl trial would be disulfiram with doxyl. This also fits in nicely with uh, the work of Kurt Weiss in Pittsburgh studying doxorubicin and disulfiram in osteosarcoma. And we were actually approached, both uh, Kurt and I, by uh, Stephen Marcus, who's the CEO of a company called Camtex, Cantex, who is developing disulfiram and has already done a couple of clinical trials in uh, brain tumors. 
using disulfiram combined with chemotherapy, and he wanted to uh, help us develop a clinical trial um, testing this in osteosarcoma and other sarcomas. And, you know, I thought, and I think uh, my collaborators agreed that liposomal doxorubicin would be a great drug to combine it with. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of relapsed sarcoma patients and we have a lot of them on doxel and other sites are doing that too. So it seemed like a, a good choice of something we would probably be giving, offering patients anyway. And with the preclinical data we have, there's a good chance that disulfiram might help the doxel work even better at targeting those resistant cells. So the way we have it um, designed is you'd give disulfiram and uh, there's also some evidence that giving it with copper is important because copper, when it's absorbed in the body, it binds with copper and that makes the drug more, even more active. And there's also some, some you know, theories out there that maybe disulfiram's, the way it's working is actually transporting the copper into the cancer cells uh, potentially. So we're looking at answering that question too with this trial. But anyway, you'll take, uh, the patients will take disulfiram and copper for a week. Then we'll start doing to kind of load uh, the patient. And then we'll do, keep doing disulfiram every day, but we'll give doxel every, uh, every few weeks. Uh, and then after two cycles, we'll do scans. And we do want to build in, if safe, and kind of required for patients 18 and up, optional for patients 18 and younger, core needle biopsies of the tumor so that we can better understand who is responding to this, why are they responding, who's not responding, why are they not responding. And the only way we can do that is by looking at the tumor tissue. And so that's why we built in um, biopsies. And again, core needle ones, not ma major surgeries, only if it's deemed safe at the beginning of therapy and uh, after two cycles. And then you can continue after that. And then we built in the option to do local control therapies if needed, if wanted uh, by the patient and the treating physicians after that first evaluation at cycle, two cycles. And then you can continue on the drugs afterwards if you want. So we've kind of tweaked it multiple times. This latest design is a phase one, three plus three dose escalation. That's the kind of the standard way we escalate doses. We're keeping the doxel the same dose throughout because we know a good dose to use. We're keeping the copper uh, stable. And then we're increasing or decreasing the um, disulfiram dose uh, as tolerated. And, and I designed it so that we start at a pretty good dose. If it's tolerated, we'll go up to kind of the standard maximum dose that have been used on other trials. If it's too toxic, we step down one step, but it's still a dose that we think would work pretty well on that enzyme uh, based on you know, the years and years of uh, experience we have with um, alcohol, uh, alcoholism uh, using this drug. So it's open for all relapse sarcomas, not just osteosarcoma, though I think we'll get a lot of osteosarcoma patients interested. You know, we need to make sure patients 
we don't hurt patients. So they're, especially their liver has to be working well, their kidneys, other organs. Right now, disulfiram is only available in a pill, um, as is the, the copper. Uh, as I said, they have to be willing to have the tumor biopsies. Uh, and then they have to abstain from alcohol unless they want to make themselves very, very sick. Fortunately, most of the kids are not drinking alcohol. Adults, it's a sacrifice you're going to have to make. Alfram seems to be working in a variety of different ways. And with a lot of the trials in past years that have failed, not only is it bad that they failed, but we also don't know why they failed. And so that's why something like building in some of the blood tests and the biopsies is so important because I don't expect this drug to, to be a miracle cure and cure everybody. But I do think some patients probably will be helped by this. And the key thing is being able to identify who those patients are and understand better why they were the ones that responded. And the only way to do that is to get the tumor tissue before and after therapy and see what changed and try to gather a little bit better what mechanism disulfiram is, is how it's working. And a question that comes up a lot is that if disulfiram increases the toxicity to the cancer cells, won't it increase the toxicity to normal cells? This is kind of the beauty of disulfiram and why I've gotten really uh, um, enamored with it. It's because it's been around so long that people have actually tested it um, in cancer patients before. Uh, and trying to look at various other things, whether it had an effect on bone marrow. Well, this study showed that it really did not have a, a huge effect on bone marrow, um, which aldehyde dehydrogenase is, is seen in very high levels in uh, bone marrow stem cells, which is one of the you know, areas that we're worried about some toxicity that they might have. Similarly, it's been used to try to protect uh, organs from toxic effects of chemotherapy. So it, it actually has been shown uh, to kind of do what uh, Xenicard, uh, uh, dextrozoxane, does in cardioprotecting uh, against doxorubicin. It does a very similar effect, at least in rats. And then it also uh, was being tested, at least in mice, to see if it protects the kidneys against the side effects of iphosphamide. In mice, it did. In a human trial, looking at that, it actually didn't really uh, show those effects. But at the very least, it doesn't seem to add toxicity. Then we are kind of all ready to go with a clinical trial. And you know, at the end of last year, the FDA uh, put in place new regulations such that they're meant to make drugs more available for children and, and make clinical trials for new drugs more available for pediatric patients, which is honorable, uh, you know, definitely something we're, we're all in favor of. Uh, but I was on a phone call with the FDA a couple weeks ago for a separate trial, and they basically had us completely revamp the clinical trial because now instead of, you know, if we had a trial including children, they would tell us, ask us, why are you including children? Uh, do it in adults first, then make it available for children. Now they've 
changed completely 180 degrees where they're asking, why aren't children involved included in this trial? And so then it's on us to include children, but do it in a way where we can get meaningful data. And so that's how uh, the latest change and rewrite for the clinical trial that uh, I've had to do in the last month or so was to actually include children, which I wanted to originally, but had not, but now I can, but to do it in a way such that we can actually get meaningful data. So what we're gonna do is uh, dose escalation for the 18 and up uh, population and a separate one for the under 18. Uh, and hopefully we'll show that they can both tolerate the drug pretty well and move forward. So again, this is not the sexy part of uh, cancer research. This is paperwork, this is rewrites, this is bureaucracy. Um, but the, the protocol is re-re-rewritten. Um, we just have some of the research aspects um, to add to it. Uh, we've re-secured funding with my move from uh, uh, Miami to, to Cleveland. We lost some funding, which had to stay at, uh, at the prior institution. But uh, fortunately, we've applied for another grant and kind of uh, got that money back, so to speak. And uh, Ann, an MIB agents, was able to transfer the money to us. Um, Cantex Pharmaceuticals, again, has expressed their interest in supporting us and providing the drug, which is awesome. Uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, uh, teaming up with uh, Dr. Weiss and uh, his lab, and I'm very happy to get him a lot of these tumor samples to uh, really understand what exactly is happening um, uh, in, in these tumors treated with disulfiram. And, and honestly, it was a beautiful thing because we were kind of working in parallel, neither of us really aware of each other's work. And I think it was due to uh, some, some tweets uh, from the Factor Conference when I presented this work that uh, he caught wind of what we were doing and uh, that grew into this co collaboration. We're gonna do some analyses of uh, drug levels, uh, which we can do here at the, the clinic. This whole COVID thing has kind of derailed some things also because for instance, a lot of the labs aren't considered essential, uh, essential workers. And so uh, they've been on hold, but we're slowly reopening. So we'll be able to do that. And again, the, the protocol is like 99% written um, and we should be submitting it soon to the FDA. So sometime later this year, again, the FDA is kind of also burdened with a lot of the COVID stuff, um, as are the IRBs, but we hope to, to be able to wade through that and get this trial up and running pretty soon. With that, uh, I'd like to thank Kurt, um, his great ideas and support. Uh, Stephen Marcus, again, it was a kind of a phone call, an email out of the blue, um, really, you know, helped push this uh, along and makes life a lot easier when a, you have a pharmaceutical company providing you the drug. Uh, Dave Loeb, who's been a mentor for me for years, Damon Reed uh, has also been very supportive of this drug and is looking to expand it after we do this phase of the, the clinical trial to really take it and, and expand it nationally once we have some data. Dr. Anderson's uh, keeps asking me, when is this trial ready? I have patience for it. I was like, we're getting there. 
and then other collaborators here at the clinic um, that are going to be helping do some of those laboratory uh, specimen collections and pharmacokinetics. And all of the, the funding agencies uh, that have supported this work, uh, NIB agents is for, for sure they've been uh, supporting since the onset of this idea. Sebastian Strong, Cantex is on board, Women's Cancer Association in Miami, and most recently Velosano Kids here out of the Cleveland Clinic uh, just awarded us some money for this. With that, I thank you all, and I'd love to answer any questions you might have. So looking at the where the funding came from, I, I don't know that many people understand. I know I didn't uh, before I had MIB and we started funding research. I didn't realize how much funding did not come from the government and how much funding did come from private organizations. Can you talk about the impact that grants like MIB and Sebastian Strong and, and small nonprofits uh, have on research? Certainly. I mean, I can tell you a project like this simply would not happen without the support of, of foundations like uh, MIB agents and the other ones I mentioned, because it's, it's truly taking something in its infancy. It's, it's little more than an idea. Sure, there's, there's data to back it up, but it's not like this huge amount of data that is what is required for some of the government sponsored um, uh, grants. And if you, we could spend our time developing all that data so that we can apply for the government funded grants, sure, but that would take years and years and years. You think things are going slow with, with developing the trial now, that would take even longer. And on top of that, even if you develop all that data, you submit it and they're funding uh, like only the top 9% of, of clinical, of, of research. And that's not even clinical trials and that's not even pediatric. Um, and so, but foundations like MIB agents, like Sebastian Strong, like uh, Velosano Kids, even Alex's Lemonade Stand, St. Baldrick's, all these foundations, they're focus, the fact that they're focusing on pediatrics helps immensely. We're focusing on osteosarcoma, these rare tumors. And then the, the fact that they're willing to kind of support, this is an idea. It's not harebrained. It's, you know, there's some basis to it, but it's not supported with, you know, binders and binders worth of data. It's just things pieced together, but it, it makes a, a, a decent argument. And so without foundations like, like MIB agents and, and the other ones, this kind of research could not happen, simply put. Right. Amazing. Um, if anybody has any questions, uh, you can sort of raise your hand or write, write a question in the chat box and, and we'll ask it for you. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of adverse reactions except for alcohol. <laughs> right, um, uh, you know, unless you're you're drinking alcohol, are the, am I missing something? So, I mean, this drug's been around for sixty plus years, and if you yeah. you know do a search for disulfiram toxicity or something like that, there are you know rare bad side effects. They are extremely rare. Um, 
it can hurt the liver. You know, again, if you're talking about alcoholics, they, their livers tend not to be so great. Um, so there's certainly, uh, the water is a little muddied. Uh, you know, in pediatrics, a lot of the, the only data we have in disulfiram is for kids who get into their parents' drugs and, you know, overdose on disulfiram. The vast majority of those, they do fine unless they're taking like massive doses, like several fold higher than what we would uh, come anywhere close to in, in our trial. And then it can have very profound uh, toxicities. Um, but at the doses we're using, it's an extremely safe drug. Again, most people don't even, people using it for alcoholism, they just don't even notice um, unless they're taking, uh, unless they drink alcohol. And in the trials that have been done, mostly in like pediatric, or sorry, adult brain tumors, you know, it it's a little hard to piece out what exactly is due to the disulfiram versus the other chemo. Um, and is this, you know, I think the biggest toxicity was uh, somnolence. It, it made people sleepy uh, when they were getting chemo and uh, disulfiram. But if that's the biggest toxicity, I mean, not too bad. Yeah. Um, You're sleepy during chemo anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Liz, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Um, can you hear me? Yep. Great. Um, we, we've heard a lot of work done lately about the different mutations or subtypes of osteosarcoma and trying to figure out what role those play. Do, does the um, aldehyde dehydrogenase activity or amount at all link with the types of mutations that we're seeing in tumors? Um, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, no one's really looked at that. One of the things we're building into this trial is, you know, we don't have the money to do genetic sequencing on everybody who's, who's getting, who's going to be on this trial. But let's face it, most of our patients probably all have, you know, foundation one testing or something like that. So we're asking to, to have access to those. And then we'll see, you know, when we identify from that first biopsy, oh my goodness, this patient has tons of aldehyde dehydrogenase. We can then look back at the genetics and say, okay, what mutations do you have uh, that might have li linked up to that? Um, I was told uh, by Katie Janeway uh, at the last Factor Conference that she had heard from the Broad Institute that uh, mutation in one of the chromosomes that was closely linked to copper metabolism seemed to be important in um, osteosarcoma. So again, it kind of fits in and we wanna try to, as along with establishing the safety of this drug, also try to better understand how it's working and, and for who it's working so that we can you know, tailor it and, and really give it to the patients who are gonna benefit from it and not give it to patients who are not gonna benefit. Yeah. All the more we need to keep uh, talking about and encouraging foundation, uh, foundation one testing, but also participation in the osteosarcoma project so we can inform the CU bio portal and uh, osteosarcoma researchers everywhere. Amanda, you have a question? Yeah. Since it has already been given to humans and you basically know it's safe, Will that affect the amount of people allowed to be in the phase one trial? And 
it would only be a Cleveland clinic? Would it be in other locations? Right. So we do know the safety of the drug alone in adults. We don't know anything about the safety of this drug combined with liposomal doxorubicin, which is why we have to do the, the dose finding. And we know little or nothing about this drug in pediatrics, let alone in pediatrics combined with, uh, with chemotherapy. So that's why we have to do these studies. The way the typical approach for the phase one is enrolling three patients at once, making sure they're safe. If it's safe, increasing the dose. If it's not safe, decreasing the dose to try to find a dose that, that's safe. I've designed this in a way to try to minimize the amount of patients in a sense, like we want to get the answer of what's the safe dose as fast as possible to then expand it beyond the Cleveland Clinic and nationally with the right dose. And so right now I envision this trial as maybe having like, you know, potentially as little as six patients and we figure it out or, you know, 12 to 18. It, it, it shouldn't take a ton of patients to get this uh, answered and then hope to kind of very quickly translate it into a phase two where that could be expanded to, to multiple institutions. Okay, thank you. Cool. Florencia? Is there a way to quantify the level of ALDH in patients to see how they might correlate to the sulfiram response? So that's what we're hoping to do in this trial, but um, it's going to be a little bit backwards in that it would take a separate study looking specifically at let's biopsy a bunch of tumors, see what the aldehyde dehydrogenase level is in patients, and then treat them with disulfiram to see which ones respond. If you want to directly answer the question that, that you're asking, we want to get that information, but we're going to do it as part of the study, and that's what the biopsies before and after are going to be, where we'll biopsy everybody, we'll treat them, and then retrospectively we can look back and say, okay, these six patients responded beautifully, let's see what their aldehyde dehydrogenase level was. If it just so happens the ones with the highest levels are the ones that responded, you know, that would support our hypothesis and, and make sense. If the ones that did not respond didn't actually have very high aldehyde dehydrogenase, maybe they had another mechanism, you know, we would be able to understand that based on those, those side tests that we're going to be doing on those biopsy specimens, which is why, trust me, I don't want to put a needle into a, any patient, any child needlessly, but the only way we're going to learn the, the answers to those questions is by doing these biopsies and these, these analyses. Thank you. Okay. I th thank you. I think uh, last question uh, is Liz. We all kind of know from going through this process that when you can remove osteosarcoma tumors, that is the best case to do. But often when you get multiple relapses, they want to see stability of disease before they go and do multiple um, tumor removals. So my question is with this trial, 
Um, if they do a biopsy kind of in the beginning and then they do part of the trial, could one of the later biopsies actually be tumor removal at that point if stability of disease is achieved? Yeah, uh, you know, most clinical trials have this need for measurable disease as part of it because you want to, if you're measuring if the treatment works, you have to have something to, to follow. The way I've built it, especially because it's the phase one and it's really just about safety is, let's get through those first two cycles, let's do the scans, that'll give us the information about are you responding? And then that second biopsy could actually be surgical removal of the tumor. I, 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 you know, I, awesome. I'm wearing my oncologist hat as I'm designing this trial of like, what would make me want to put my patients on this? What would make me happy yeah. uh, in treatment? And so after those first two cycles, any surgery radiation even uh, is permitted in a safe way. Um, and then they can continue on the trial if, if we think they're benefiting from it. Fantastic. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. That was really cool. Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Truco, uh, for wearing your oncologist hat while designing a trial, especially. <laughs> we like to hear that. And um, as always, for your service to MIB agents and, and osteosarcoma kids everywhere. Next week, we have Dr. Joshua Schiffman of Huntman Cancer Institute, who'll be with us talking about his MIB-funded research, which is EP-loaded nanoparticles for osteosarcoma, otherwise known as how elephants are helping osteosarcoma kids. You kind of don't want to miss that. It's pretty exciting. Um, in the meantime, if you can help outsmart osteosarcoma with MIB agents, please do. During this time, our donations have dropped and we really need your help. If you would consider donating via link provided after this presentation, we will be grateful indeed and promise to use it for good and thank you for using your powers for good. This video and podcast and all the versions of this and all Osteobite sessions are available on our website by, by clicking the blue bar at the top of the page at mibagents.org. We're now available on all... Uh, podcast platforms. Uh, thank you for joining us today, especially thanks to our guests, Dr. Truco, uh, Amanda, Florencia, and Liz. Stay safe, everyone. If MIB agents can be of help to you, please let us know. Together, we make it better for kids with osteosarcoma. Thanks again for being here. We hope you join us next week when Dr. Joshua Schiffman of Huntsman Cancer Institute joins us to talk about his MIB outsmarting osteosarcoma funded research, EP53 loaded nanoparticle for osteosarcoma. Until then, please help make it better for kids with osteosarcoma. Visit our website at mibagents.org.